We're going to be back in the Sermon on the Mount today, and it's entirely appropriate that today was a Lord's Supper Sunday. When King Jesus arrived on this earth and began his ministry, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. And at that moment, the kingdom of God invaded this broken world in a way that it never had before. And the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords walked as a carpenter and died as a lamb in our place to establish the kingdom of God as we never would have dreamed of it. And he rose again victorious and he rode the clouds to heaven where he sits on his throne and he left us to live out his kingdom and to bring his ways to this world until he returns and claims his children his own. And that all happened through the cross and his resurrection. We're going to be looking at the Beatitudes this morning. So if you want to turn to Matthew 5, I'm going to read verses 2 through 12, and then we are going to, we're going to walk through verses 3 through 12. But the Beatitudes are uh, the opening salvo of the Sermon on the Mount, the opening salvo on our worldliness and our, on our self-centeredness. The Sermon on the Mount is all about the people of the kingdom. Who are the people of the kingdom of God? What do their lives look like? How do they interact with others in this fallen world? That's what we see in the kingdom. And specifically, in the Beatitudes, Jesus opens with who we are to be. He deals with our hearts. And so let's read that, and then we'll, we'll dive into the passage. Matthew 5, 2 through 12 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you so much that we gather not in an attempt to earn anything from you, not in an attempt to please you, but we gather as the reconciled children of God. We gather as those who have been saved uh, by the blood of Jesus Christ that have been brought into a new covenant where we become your people solely based on the work of Jesus. And we ask as we walk through this very challenging passage, we ask that you would be active in our hearts and our minds, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would comfort and encourage us where we need to be comforted, and that we would walk out today people of your kingdom for your glory and honor. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, this passage um, can be hard for us to know what to do with. It can look like a checklist. The conditionals. If you are merciful, you will receive mercy. If you are pure in heart, you will see God. And it can sound like this to-do list, tasks that we have to do to be on God's good side. But we just celebrated the Lord's Supper. We just remembered that Christ died in our place. 
and that through his body and through his blood, there is a new covenant through which we are made children of God completely by his doing. Our gospel is expressed in Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Our gospel says that Jesus paid the price, that we are reconciled to God solely through the work of Jesus. There is no room for conditional statements in that. And yet, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You see, this passage identifies the people of the kingdom not by what they have done, not by achievement, but by the path that they are on. It's not about what we do, have done, to please God. There's not a checklist. There's a path that we are on as people of the kingdom. The starting point for that journey is being fully reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That's where we launch from. But walking this path, being on this journey, is proof that we are, in fact, new creatures in Christ, that we have been born again. The proof is in the pudding. And walking this path is that pudding. I, walk at, I work at a bike shop a couple days a week, and as I studied this passage, I kept thinking of two very different customer interactions that I had uh, quite a while ago. The first one was this couple walked into the bike shop, and they stood there and kind of scanned, and they made their way to the raciest, fastest, most expensive kinds of bikes. And they looked at them, and they chatted for a few minutes, and they said, we want these, the nicest ones. And we tried to talk about how they like to ride, and they would have nothing of it. They said, we want these. We said, okay. And they said, we need some accessories. So we tried again to talk about how they want to ride and where they're at as, as, as cyclists and so forth. They didn't want anything. They just wanted the best stuff. So we put the best stuff together for them, and as the transaction proceeded, they came out, and they said, we're not actually cyclists. We just have friends that are, and we want to look like we fit in. And, and so... We were just helping them fit in with this group of supposed friends. They, they weren't about the writing. Maybe they were going to eventually grow into it. I don't know. But they were there to look like they belonged with that group of people, not to actually be a part of that group of people. They were posers. They were very nice. They spent a lot of money at the bike shop. But they were posers. They weren't cyclists. That's one interaction. A very, very different one was one day... Um, the, the, the shop hosts some, some organized rides. Some of them are very long and hard. We just had one last week. Uh, long, hard, and punishing. That's what cyclists tend to like. And so we host those rides for them. Confession, on those days, I generally stay back at the bike shop. They're out riding, and then I welcome people back. Uh, but on those days, the people that are really excited about it, they show up early and they register and, you know, they're in their spandex and the cool shades and their cool bikes and they're talking and there are, I will say there are great friendships that are born in, in cycling. And so guys get together and they have a great time and kind of this sea of spandex is gathering and all of a sudden two college guys roll up on like ratty old mountain bikes with thick knobby tires and they're wearing just like Walmart athletic shorts and cotton t-shirts and old busted up helmets grinning from ear to ear. And they show up and they're looking around and the ride sets out and they're at the, the very back are these two guys on their old bikes. And uh, I waited a long time that day for these guys to come back from the ride. 
but they did eventually. And they were caked in sweat and dust and had grease on their hands. And they looked exhausted, but they were grinning from ear to ear. They didn't have any of the gear that is considered essential for being a cyclist. But what they did proved that they were. The other couple had all the gear, all the stuff. They could look the part, but they didn't walk the walk. And these two guys had none of the stuff, but it was in their heart, and they showed that they were cyclists. The Beatitudes distinguish the posers from the real people of the kingdom. And that's a very hard reality, is that as we walk through this passage, we will either identify and say, boy, I'm I'm really not good at this stuff, but that's the direction I'm in, or we will realize we have all the accessories. We have a well-used Bible, and we show up at church often, but this does not reflect my heart. That is not who I am. The Beatitudes are not um, a matter of all done or nothing because none of us are fully merciful. None of us are fully pure in heart. Jesus did that, and he saved us, and he gave us that reconciliation. The rest of us are on a journey, and the Beatitudes will do two things. They will give us hard evidence about whether we are really people of the kingdom or not. They will give us hard evidence, and that requires a hard, honest look at our hearts. The second thing they do is that they provide a magnetic north for the internal compass of the people of the kingdom. The Beatitudes show us which direction the people of the kingdom are moving. Not that we have arrived, not that we have done it, not that we are perfect at it, but they show us which way we need to be going. Walking with Jesus is not a destination. It is a journey. We start reconciled with God, and that sets us on a journey. And the Beatitudes are the magnetic north. That's the direction we're supposed to be walking if we are truly people of the kingdom. And that's why this is going to be a challenging sermon in many ways, because some of us might find out that we we look the part, but this isn't our heart. And some of us might say, you know what, my life's a wreck. I don't have any of the gear that makes me look like a good Christian. But that is my heart. And, and I'm striving for it, and it's hard, and I get bloody and dusty and sweaty. But that's the direction I'm headed. And the wonderful news is that Jesus loves to save sinners. And Jesus promises to support his people along the way. So whichever way you land on this sermon as you realize you're a poser or you realize I'm on the journey, but man, it's a hard road. Jesus is there. He will save you and make you a person of his kingdom and he will strengthen you and keep you all the way to the end till he welcomes us into the fullness of his kingdom. And that's the blessing promised in the Beatitudes. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Is that if this is true of us, if this is the journey that we are on, We are on the path to receive the fullness of the kingdom of God, the fullness of the intimacy with God, the completion of God's ways. So that's our our journey today. Uh, The first point is magnetic north. It's verses 3 through 10. So we'll spend most of our time there. And then a quick look at, at at hope that Jesus promises along the way.
Uh, But let's dive in to verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Excellent. Getting the kingdom of heaven sounds great. Kingdom of heaven, by the way, is another term for a kingdom of God. They can be used interchangeably. But poor in spirit, that seems like a costly way to get the kingdom of heaven. We don't always even know what that means. To be in poor in spirit is to be empty-handed before God. To approach God uh, with no confidence in ourselves and no agenda for him. We're not saying, God, I'm bringing this to the table. I've got it pretty figured out, and therefore I need you to do this for me. Or that, that is not being poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is coming before God and saying, God, I, I've got nothing. I need you, and I want your way. I need you, and I want your way. That is poor in spirit. Jesus modeled it for us. By the way, Jesus modeled all of these. He fulfilled all of these perfectly in his lifetime. And if I was preaching a sermon on each of the Beatitudes, we would look at those in depth. Uh, But we don't have time to do that today, so I, I picked a few to highlight. After the Lord's Supper... Jeff mentioned this episode as he was preparing us for the Lord's Supper. After that last supper, Jesus took his disciples to the garden to pray, and a mob came to arrest Jesus. It was a large mob. They were armed, and um, they approached the disciples, and Peter looks at Jesus, and he's just like, I've got Jesus in my sword. We're good to go. And he cuts the guy's ear off. And Jesus stops him and says, no. And he heals the man that was wounded. And then he says this. Wait, I totally just went into the wrong story. (laughs) I've got to back up a minute. Also, the Last Supper, uh, but different episodes, same place, the garden. But right now, I wanted to show you Jesus' prayer. When he was praying in the garden, he didn't want to go through what was about to happen. He, He was not excited about the path that he was on. And this is his prayer. He says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here, he tells his disciples, and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That is empty-handed. God, that looks really hard. I would rather not walk that way. But if that's the way you want me to go, I'm going to go and I'm going to trust you. That is empty-handed. That is poor in spirit. And the wonderful news is that when we are poor in spirit, when our confidence is not in what we can do, and, and we have no agenda, no desired outcome of our own, when we surrender those to God, God does everything that is needed through Christ and through his Holy Spirit and through his people, and we are sure to receive the kingdom of heaven. God's full intention is to give his people the fullness of the kingdom of God. And what God intends to do, God accomplishes. And so when God enables us to come before him and to say, God, I bring nothing to the table and I want what you want, God says, fantastic. Because I've done everything that needs to to be done and I will do everything that needs to happen and you will receive the fullness of my kingdom. Success comes when we surrender our confidence and when we surrender our agenda and we seek God's because what God sets out to do, 
God accomplishes. And the blessing is we get the kingdom of God. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is a beautiful promise. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But how does it fit into the Beatitudes? When Jesus talks about who the people of the kingdom are, how does this promise fit in? Well, on the one hand, as long as we live in this fallen and broken world, there will be mourning. And the Prince of Peace, God with us, promises comfort. God promises comfort. As the people of God, walking in the way of the cross, we will need to be comforted. And Jesus promises comfort. We gather on Sunday mornings, we gather in smaller settings during the week as those walking a path and living in a world that brings mourning, where we will need to be comforted. And Jesus promises that comfort. That's an incredible promise. There's also something, I think, very challenging that comes with that. And that is the reality that we can walk with God in such a way as to protect ourselves and protect those that we love. Or we can walk in God in such a way, just walk with God in such a way as to completely trust him. And to say, God, I don't know what you're going to do with these people that I love and with this setting that I appreciate. But you promised comfort if it hurts along the way. And so I'm going to walk with you. And I'm not going to make my life about seeking comfort here and now. I'm going to make my life about walking with you, Jesus. Because you said that ultimately you will comfort me. And he does. Walking in the way of the cross with Jesus is going to lead us through painful moments. And he promises to comfort us when those painful moments come. The testimony of the saints that have gone before us, the testimony of many of you who have been through very difficult moments, is that as you mourn, the, the comfort of Christ is absolutely unique. And you have an intimacy with him that you can't experience in the midst of comfort. And the wonderful news is that final and eternal comfort is coming. The pain of this world, whatever it is, is temporary. And the comfort of God is eternal. That is this promise. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Inheriting the earth sounds promising, especially if this is talking about the new heavens and the new earth, which it is. Um, but meek doesn't exactly earn popularity points in most places. I mean, think about Americana, our, our, our history. Meekness is not appreciated. And I've got two words to prove it. John Wayne. When the bad guys showed up, John Wayne never said, oh, here's my gun, and there's the money, and there's the girl, and I'm going to leave. No, in a John Wayne movie, when the bad guys showed up, John Wayne would show them who's boss. He'd school them. He'd bring justice. He'd protect the woman. He'd protect the goods. He'd win. He'd banish them in the desert without sweating, and he'd say some really cool stuff in the process. 
That's, that's what we value as Americans. We value the guy that wins. But meekness? Meekness, by the way, is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. They're two very different things. Weakness is when you have no ability to get what you want. Weakness is just not being able to get what you want to get. Meekness is surrendering your ability to get what you want. And as it comes to walking with God, meekness means surrendering our ability, our power, our resources, our right, so that God's purposes can be fulfilled at our expense. Meekness is surrendering everything that we think we can get and that we bring to the table so that God's purposes are fulfilled at our expense. This is the story that I was going to earlier in the, the, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. The mob comes to arrest Jesus. Peter whips out his sword, cuts off an ear. Jesus heals the wounded man. And he says, put your sword back into place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that moment, as Jesus is being arrested by a mob of humans, he has the ability to call 12,000 angels down like that, to, to, to destroy the humans and to protect Jesus. He has that ability. He has those resources. As King of kings and Lord of lords, he has that right. But meekness is the fact that he surrendered all of that. And he said, God has a plan. It's going to be costly for me, but I'm going to walk this road and God's plan is going to be accomplished. Meekness is surrendering our abilities, our power, our resources, our rights, so that God's purposes can be fulfilled at our expense. Our meekness doesn't earn us anything. But when we, in, in, in small ways, here and now, are able to live out meekness, we prove that we are co-heirs with Christ. And Christ will receive the fullness of the kingdom of God as his reward, as his inheritance. And as his co-heirs, we get that with him. We get to be in the presence of God and to see his ways done as the fullness of the kingdom of God comes. That's what it means that we inherit the earth. We are co-heirs with Christ. And when we live out meekness, we show that we are co-heirs with Christ. We don't earn it. We display it. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Thirst is a horrible thing, isn't it? I don't know what it's like for you, but when I am thirsty... When I realize I'm thirsty, I can be walking along just fine, and all of a sudden, oh, I'm thirsty. And that pretty much becomes this whole thing that I think about. And not with any of you, but it's definitely happened to me in conversation before. I'm having a conversation with somebody, and all of a sudden, I'm thirsty. They're talking, but I'm really thirsty. There's water over there. Would it be rude to go get water? But they're still talking. I should nod. They're still talking. But man, I am thirsty right now. Can I do something about that? Maybe if I offer them a drink, I can get a drink too, and then we can both be satisfied and it's not rude. 
And all of this is happening internally, and I nod occasionally, so it looks like I'm still talking. But really, I'm just obsessing about being thirsty. Because I'm thirsty. What about hungering and thirsting for righteousness? What does that look like? Righteousness is God's desires and God's ways. Exactly what God would do if he was standing here right now. That's the righteousness of God. And there's one thing that we can obsess in in this world that will be completely satisfied, partially now and fully forevermore. There's one thing, and that is righteousness. When, our, when we are obsessed with doing what God would do and with desiring what God would do, when that controls us, we are guaranteed satisfaction. Our, our sinful natures are drawn to this world and to the small pleasures in this world that offer temporary satisfaction. But every satisfaction we can get in this world will leave us thirsty. Temporary satisfaction always leaves us thirsty. And here Jesus says, the only way you will be satisfied is if you hunger and thirst for the ways and the desires of God. If you obsess over who God is and what God does and what God desires, you will be satisfied. And we celebrated Lord's Supper this morning, not because we achieve righteousness, not because we get there, but because Christ took us there and Christ gave us his heart and we have the righteousness of God within us. And when we fan that flame and when we foster that pursuit, when we thirst and hunger for righteousness, we are on a path that leads to eternal satisfaction rather than eternal misery. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you will be satisfied. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We want mercy, right? We sing about it. Any awareness of, of our sinfulness makes us crave mercy. We need mercy. We want mercy. We're aware of that. But here is that one of those difficult kind of conditional if-then statements. The merciful shall receive mercy. How does that work? Do I have to be merciful and God is keeping a tally and if I dispense enough mercy, he says, okay, Jeff gets mercy. It's okay, he passed. That that doesn't jive at all with the Lord's Supper that we celebrated. That doesn't jive with our gospel. So that can't be what's going on. Receiving mercy. When we truly receive mercy from God, we are changed. And when we express mercy, when we dispense mercy, we are expressing our Father's DNA. We are showing that we have been changed. When we dispense mercy, we prove that we, have dis that we have received mercy. When we are on the path of giving away mercy, we are on the path of walking with Jesus, of living as his people. Ultimately, as we walk the very difficult road of not doling out consequences to people as they deserve them, we are walking in the way of the cross with Jesus. And that is a journey that ends when we experience the fullness of redemption in Christ, the fullness of God's mercy for us. When we walk 
as mercy givers, we are on the path of those that have received mercy and will finally receive complete mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This one is both simple and incredibly challenging. But here it is in a nutshell. A heart that harbors sin cannot have full fellowship with God. A heart that harbors sin cannot have full fellowship with God. God's holiness impedes his presence from dwelling where sin is being nurtured. Nurturing sin and walking intimately with God are not compatible. There's no other way around that. When we harbor sin in our hearts, we isolate ourselves from God. And by the way, we also isolate ourselves from each other. Because as those saved by God, we have the presence of God, and sin does not want to be about God, around God. And so we isolate ourselves both from God and from his people when we harbor sin. Intimacy with God is not about uh, knowledge or age or experience or training or big fancy vocabularies. Intimacy with God is about hidden holiness. Hidden holiness. What do we pursue when only God sees? In the deepest parts of who we are, where only God can see, are we pursuing holiness or are we harboring sin? If we are harboring sin, we are not walking in the way of the cross. We are not walking with Jesus. But if we're fostering hidden holiness, if that is growing within us, not, this isn't a matter of I never have a sinful desire. We all have those, right? We all have today. Um, this is about where am I going? Which way am I moving? Am I trying to protect sin in my heart and keep it alive? Or am I doing everything that I possibly can to purge sin in the hidden places of who I am? We're going to have ups and downs in that journey, but which way are you going? Are you pursuing hidden holiness or are you harboring sin? Hidden holiness is the path of walking as a child of God's. Hidden holiness is the path to intimacy with God. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. God is the consummate peacemaker. We wronged God, but he is the one that reached out and made costly peace with us. He didn't just ignore our sin. He reached out. He paid the price. He crossed the gap. He brought us back to himself. He made us his children and he continually makes sure that we know that he loves us and that nothing will change that. That is God's aggressive peacemaking. God didn't just wait for us to realize that we were wrong and come back and say, I'm sorry. God goes after us. God paid the price. God pursues. God makes things right. And when we do that in this world we prove that we have our Father's DNA. All of us have been wronged. And this, this isn't saying when you're 
angry at someone, although it's good to go and, and deal with that, but this is specifically about when someone has wronged you. You don't wait for them to change their mind and to see the error of their ways. God didn't do that for us. This is saying if we're going to be peacemakers, like our father is a peacemaker, then when we are wronged, we go after those people, not to bash them, but to pay the price for their wrong against us. We absorb the debt for their wrongdoing. That is a peacemaking that we cannot do apart from Christ. That is a peacemaking that this world does not have. And when we do that, when we move in that direction, not that we accomplish it, but when we say, God, that person wronged me, but I want to be reconciled with them. I want to be right with them. I want to go after them. When we do that, we are living out our Father's DNA. We prove that we are sons and daughters of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemaking at this level is the exclusive territory of the children of God. And when we put flesh to God's peacemaking nature, we prove that we are his children. And that is a fantastic eternal blessing. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think Jesus saved the hardest for last. Because some around us, some among us, and for sure many of God's saints have paid a very hefty price for walking with God for pursuing who he is and for doing what he would do. The daily challenges that we face in walking with God, we often think of those when we hear the word persecution, the rolling of eyes of people, the mocking and whatever. Jesus actually deals with that in a second. That's not what this is about. This is about persecution. One day uh, at seminary, a classmate of mine uh, from Pakistan before class asked us to pray for Pakistani Christians. And he started showing us pictures of churches burned to the ground and of believers' houses burned to the ground. Not because they did anything wrong, but because they claimed Christ among people that hated Jesus. They claimed Christ in a place where it was hard to do that. And they said, no, we are not going to forsake. And no, our church is not going to be about Allah. It's about Jesus. And they were burned to the ground. That's persecution. Walking with Jesus, doing what God would do and seeking what God would do is costly in this broken world of rebellion. And to, to that segment of his people, to those that experience genuine persecution, God promises something special, something unique. The kingdom of heaven. On the one hand, we all get that. But the, the promise that Jesus reiterates here is that when you forsake everything in this world for me, I'm going to give you everything. When this world takes away everything that you have, I'm going to give you more than this world could possibly give you. When this world hurts more than you can possibly handle, I am going to comfort and renew you more than this world possibly can. 
And there is an intimacy that those who are persecuted experience with Jesus that we who are comfortable don't get. And on the one hand, thank God that we can have the door open and the sign out front when we worship. But I don't know that many persecuted Christians would give up the intimacy they experience with God to have a sign out front. There is a precious intimacy that God has promised. And brothers and sisters, those of you that are parenting young children, I honestly think our generation of children are the ones that might experience this in America. And that changes how we parent. How do you parent so that your children can watch their house burn down and cry out to Jesus and worship him? That is hard. That is challenging. But Jesus promises a unique comfort, a unique intimacy, a unique restoring of all things beyond what this world can possibly strip away. That is our king. Those are the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 10. The very challenging magnetic north by which the people of the kingdom set their internal compass. And if as, we walk, as we walk through those, you might say, I hear what you're saying, but my heart is over here. Or you might say, I hear what you're saying, but it's really hard. It's a very hard journey. It's a costly journey that you're saying I need to be walking on. And Jesus gives us some precious hope along the way. In verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Doing the Beatitudes seeking righteousness, being meek, being merciful. It is costly in this world. We will be taken advantage of. You will be passed over for promotion. People will roll their eyes at you. People might, might not want to befriend you. The challenge is to not do those things because we are rude, but because we're pursuing God. This specifically says when they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. If people have a hard time with me because I'm rude, that's on me. That's not this. But if I say, I am walking in the path of Jesus, and you just took advantage of me, but you know what? I'm going to pay the price, and I'm going to try to extend mercy with you, to you and make peace with you, and God, I'm going to trust God, and this is the path I'm supposed to be on, and it is costly, and my bank account is draining, and I'm struggling in everything that I am doing, but I'm convinced that this is the path that I need to be on. At that moment, when we stay on that path, we are on the same path as the saints that have gone before that laid down their lives in walking with God, and we receive the same reward that they are now enjoying. That is the path of the people of God. That is true north for us. That is the direction that we are to go. As we wrap this up, brothers and sisters, the Beatitudes are not some sort of code 
that God is bound to follow if we do our part. That's great news because there's no way that we can do our part. There is no way that we can live up to God's righteousness. There is no way that we can extend mercy as he has extended it to us. There is no way that we can be peacemakers the way that he has made peace with us. We can't do that. But the wonderful news is that Jesus has already done it. And so we start on this journey not trying to achieve something we can't. We start on this journey with what Christ has already done. And that's our launching point. The Beatitudes are magnetic north for our internal compasses. Remember those two college guys that had none of the accessories to look like cyclists? But by what they did, by what they were passionate about, they proved that they actually were. And that couple that went to great expense to try to look like something that they weren't. This passage distinguishes the posers from the real people of the kingdom. We can look like we belong. We can fool a lot of people. But if this is not where your heart is headed, you're not of the kingdom. And my challenge right now, my encouragement right now is to cry out to Jesus because today is the day of salvation and God loves to save sinners. And if you've been kind of faking it for a long time, I guarantee that when you realize, I was acting the part, but I wasn't actually. But I want to be. I want to be on this path. It is costly, but if that's the path of Jesus, I want to be on that path. Jesus, save me. When you cry out, the people of the kingdom that are around you will rejoice. They won't judge you. They won't throw you out. We will rejoice. And so if that is you, cry out to Jesus today. Or maybe you look at this and you say, yeah, that's, that's generally the direction that I'm headed in, but my compass does need some recalibration. I do need to, to fine-tune the direction that I'm going in. Then praise God. Because when he shows us that, he intends to do something about it. And what God sets out to do, he accomplishes. And he has promised to finish in us the good work that he began. Pray through these. Pray through the concepts in the Lord's Prayer. They'll move you in this direction. Do it soon. And talk about it with someone. Get in conversation with someone about where you're at in this journey. Walking with God in the way of the cross... Uh, is a journey. And, and on that journey, on that road, there are some that have come before us that are a bit further along, and there are some that are coming after us. Discipleship isn't saying, oh good, I've arrived, I'm like Jesus now. Discipleship is walking this road and seeing the people ahead and saying, I need some help right here. Can you help me? And discipleship is looking behind and saying, hey, I walked that section. Can I help you out? That's discipleship. God did not wire us to walk this journey alone. He created a journey where we desperately need him and we desperately need each other. And so if you're isolated in your walk with God, get in a conversation with someone about it today. Don't put it off. Satan wants to keep you isolated, but don't. Get in conversation with folks about it. And together, collectively, let's thank Jesus for what he has done. 
we celebrate the fact, not that we're going to earn anything on this path, but that Jesus reconciled us, made us children of God, and put us on this path. And now we're just displaying the work that he already did in making us new. That's what we're doing. So praise God that our certainty is in Christ and not in ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that your word is challenging. Thank you for the fact that we are not looking at a list of to-dos for us, a task list, eight ways to get on God's good side. Thank you that it's not that. But that we are looking at a list of who you have made us in Christ and who you are calling us to be in Christ so that we can make him visible to this fallen world. You love saving people. You love gathering trophies of your grace. And Father, for those that are here that realize they're posers, this is not their heart, I ask that your spirit would be active, convicting, and draw them to salvation, cause them to cry out to you. And we're grateful that you are a God who saves. Father, for those of us that are striving and yet have compasses that need recalibrating, for those of us that are stumbling along the way, I ask that you would recenter us and I ask that you would put us in relationship and in conversation with others along the way. God, let us not be alone in this journey. Thank you so much for Jesus and for the fact that he has finished the work and that he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. In his name we pray, amen.